Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us today, the uh, Sunday before the election. Uh, So there's a lot happening and a lot in the news cycle. Uh, But as I've told you over the last few weeks, uh, we've tried to keep the focus on a number of other critical issues that are going on around us in the state of Texas and across the nation. And while we will get to a little bit about the election uh, later in the uh, second segment today, uh, this first segment is focused uh, on rural health care and some of the challenges that we see uh, in in that area in Texas. Uh, But before we get to our special guest today and we have that discussion, I just want to remind you that in addition to listening to us live here on KTRL 90.5 FM, uh, you can also listen on tarletonradio.com. And then after the show, uh, we post as a podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcast, you can find us on Amazon, or you can also go to SoundCloud and download Uh, or listen to the episode of the show as well as previous episodes. And of course, I always encourage you to follow us on Facebook where we'll post related articles to the interviews and the issues that we cover. So today we have a very special guest uh, and and special in a number of ways, not only because of his uh, service uh, to the state and to our nation, uh, spending over 26 years in uh, the U.S. Congress representing the 17th district in Texas, but also because of of his uh, work on a wide range of issues, and that is uh, former Congressman uh, Charlie Stenholm, who some may know, especially around Tarleton, for uh, his experience and work in relation to uh, agriculture uh, and agricultural uh, policy. Uh, But uh, he's also had a focus here, especially in in recent times with some of the challenges in this area, in uh, uh, advocacy and awareness about what's happening with rural hospitals, rural health care in the state of Texas. And we have given some attention to this on, on our show before, but it's great to have someone on who is really um, engaged with this issue and really understands uh, not not just the impact that this is having on the state, but but also the needs uh, of more than ten percent of our population of the state that lives in these uh, rural areas, and that that we see such challenges with the closing of hospitals and the the access to doctors and and, and other medical care. So I, I'm very pleased today to welcome you, uh, uh, Charlie, to our show, and glad to have you here to talk about this very critical issue in the state of Texas. Eric, glad to be with you. So, an um, important subject. It, it is. And, we, and like I said, we've given attention to this before, but it's just uh, one of those areas that we see, especially in the middle of this pandemic, that continues to be very challenging. And in fact, probably it, it's it's much more acute with with the pandemic and what is happening. What led you? I know I know your your years of experience and in, and in, in working with and knowing rural Texas, but what led you to engage uh, with uh, the, these issues and to try to increase our focus and, and awareness of what needs to be done? Well, first off, obviously, I represented a rural district and. Uh, 25, 30 years ago now, we began to see the challenges of providing health care in rural areas and the necessity of maintaining health care because you can't attract any new business. You can't keep your sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters at home in their town if you don't have access to health care. And we saw that. We started uh, Help Start, uh, the Rural Health Care Coalition to get uh, rural representatives from all over the country uh, working together on something. And at the same time, talking to our urban brethren, realizing that we had to have them on board with whatever we did. Uh, And, you know, obviously uh, things haven't worked out right. And I want to give you, I want to give you a few little numbers now because they shocked me when I first did, did some research on this. First one was you mentioned agriculture, and you know I've always believed that agriculture was the most important industry in the country because if you eat, you're involved in agriculture. And I was shocked to find out today that agriculture 
is only 5.2% of our gross domestic product. Farming and ranching is 0.6% of GDP. I didn't want to believe that. But when you look at the numbers and you see how GDP is farmed, it's there. Oil and gas, 8% of GDP. Healthcare, 17.1% of healthcare. 17.1%. So healthcare has grown into a major industry. And unfortunately, unlike agriculture, in which we feed the American public with only 6.4% of their total spending, 6.4%, we feed America. Healthcare, it's 17%. So we're getting, we're not getting the value for healthcare. You would say, well, we've got the best healthcare system in the world. We do not as far as outcomes are concerned. Outcomes means whatever ails you, whatever has caused your illness, that you get better quicker in America, that's not true. We spend, the actual number is 1.3 trillion more dollars on delivering the healthcare we have, and the question is why? And that's one of the political questions that those that we elect this coming Tuesday are going to have to sooner or later address. Well, we we see this crisis all all around. I mean, we hear 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 things and see it in the in the news over and over again about hospitals closing in rural areas and the challenges of of, of getting to uh, uh, having doctors that that can cater to certain needs and so forth. What what really are the the, the factors? I mean, uh, the first thing anyone would go to would would certainly be cost, and uh, and and I'm sure that that factors into it as well. But ha- what what are those kind of specific challenges that that rural healthcare uh, and those that want to provide it are facing? Well, from from let's just talk all of healthcare and rural is part of all of healthcare. Pharmaceutical drugs. There is absolutely no reason that our drugs have to cost as much as we have. One of the issues that helped beat me in two thousand and four, I believed that. If Medicare and Medicaid are going to purchase for, in Medicaid, poor people, Medicare, all who reach the age now of 67, if government was going to buy that, shouldn't the companies compete for the right to sell that medicine? I believe they should. We lost that vote in the House of Representatives, and it helped beat me, and it's it's, uh, still an issue. If you really believe in the market system, and we do, particularly rural America believes in the market system, well, how do you explain not having to compete for the right to sell to Veterans Administration, Medicare, and Medicaid? We could lower the cost tremendously of health care if we just allowed the market to come in. But the healthcare system, and that's everybody, doctors, hospitals, pharmaceuticals, everyone that's involved, has not had to compete for, for the lowest price. Farming and ranching, we've had to compete in the world market. You know, there's only two, two million farmers. 170,000 produce 80% of everything that's produced. Okay, we have to compete. The market is in the world. We have had to compete and get help from time to time to compete. And that's where our healthcare system is going to need to go. I want to say must go. But I'm, I always remember when I say must and you've got to, I remember my eighth grade English teacher that said, there's only one thing in life you have to do, yes. let's die. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else is optional. So our political system has broken down on health care. You know, we've spent the last four years trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Okay. Repeal and replace with what? I would love to have our political leaders talking about how we replace and do it for less money. That's something we're going to have to get used to because we're running out of the ability to borrow money for any purpose. And when you've got health care as costly as it is, our political leaders are going to start need to start looking at ways to reduce that cost. And the beauty of it, it can be done. And it's not that difficult. 
So some of the, the, the costs you mentioned prescription drugs or the access to that, uh, I, I've read a number of things about, especially in rural areas where, uh, and we see it in this pandemic, the access to supplies. Uh, and and some of that has come from, if we look just at the state of Texas, I know this is a, a national issue, but we, being that Texas has a large uh, rural area uh, within it, uh, this is, is certainly of a concern in this state. And we've had the largest number of rural hospital closings, I think, than any other state in the country. But part, part of that is uh, that the state of Texas itself uh, has not had a, a bright history, I would say, of, of supporting uh, public health, of funding, uh, and, and trying to address the needs of healthcare, and and we know this is complex in a in a system that it, that involves both the federal government and the state government. But uh, uh, how does that you know on the ground when we look at rural hospitals and we look at at rural healthcare, what the state has had had some role, but what you know has that been, and what do you see are some of those factors that going along with some of the things that the federal government may need to do that the state needs to do as well? Well, that's that's one of the real puzzles to me because uh, I'm an outcast in rural America now as a representative because uh, rural America supports the very political system that has relegated rural health care to the sidelines. I mean, we, and I'm told again on Tuesday that rural America is going to be voting uh, 60, 70% for the very type of government that is closing our hospitals. And I know it's for other reasons in this, but sooner or later, since this is not just a rural issue, this is an inner city issue, it's a it's a, a country issue, because the cost of healthcare being 17% of our GDP, which is three times what our food system cost us, and not having any market attributes to the system means it's just going to continue to go up. And most middle-income Americans in rural America are having a difficult time paying their health care premiums. Ironically, Texas refused to participate in an expanded Medicaid program for our working poor. And now with COVID, we've got a heck of a lot more folks that didn't consider themselves working poor that are now working poor and need health care, and we have not provided for it. And that's that's a mark against our representative, our Republican form of government that we have. We're not a democracy. We elect those to do what needs to be done for us. And we reserve the right to replace them every two, four, six years. That's broken down. And you only have to look at our current debt at 27.2 trillion, heading for 34 trillion. Nobody's gonna stop it in the next two or three years on increased debt. And the question is, how much more more can we borrow to provide health care, to provide education? And that's where I hope whoever gets elected this coming Tuesday, it doesn't matter to me. They have got a big job mm-hmm. ahead. I've got my preference. This is not the time to express that. Everybody knows my preference. But the important thing for me is that those that we elect go to work on the problems and stop the politicizing of everything that comes down the, the pipe and start dealing with the very real problem. And we've got a problem in healthcare; It costs too much. And in rural area, we're ha- we don't have the hospitals anymore. And that means we've got to, we've got to think up some new and better ways to do it. And fortunately, we've got some people out there that are looking at that, putting together some ideas. And I hope that rural health care coalition comes back and begins to look, how do we do it? Quit complaining about it. It's happening. But how do we do it? In understanding this, too, and I mean, you're making some connections for me as as for our listeners. And we're speaking with uh, former Congressman Charlie Stenholm and talking about rural health care. But what what I see how you're you've really connected that the crisis that we see in healthcare as a whole, the, the effects of that are, are really what is driving the, the challenges and the problems in, in rural areas of our country. And, and of course, while we're hoping and, and we know that federal and state government need to respond, there, we, we've seen other creative things that are happening. I mean, one, one of the things that, um, that, that I've read about and been familiar with for a while is what 
the uh, uh, UT, A&M, I think tech may be involved in it some in terms of trying to uh, provide uh, telemedicine and, and create networks in these rural areas. Um, how is that helping to overcome some of these challenges? I, I would I would think that that that's part of a solution. It's not the full solution, as as the the, the problems and challenges here are very big and and and, and complex. But uh, are there some of those things that are making some difference and at least trying to get some access to uh, to, to healthcare, even if it's not. Uh, everything, you know, like, uh, I mean, just one example are these stories about people going into emergency rooms in rural hospitals, and they can't transfer them to the larger hospitals because of of COVID and the, and the capacity issues, and they just don't have the things to treat them. That's one part of this, but, but day in, day out, wellness, uh, uh, emergency service, those kinds of things. I think that's, that's some of the concern as well. Well, and you mentioned telemedicine, you know, to me, that's a no brainer. I remember that 20 years ago when we were we were we were creating rural health care clinics in communities that did not have a hospital or were losing their hospital, have a rural health care clinic and put together the nursing. And that's where Tarleton is part of the solution with our nursing school. Great program, very timely, and is going to become even more important in the days and years ahead, providing nursing. So if you have a, a health clinic that can provide the first health care that you need in a local community, and then telemedicine, you can connect with experts all over the world using telemedicine. And it doesn't, it, it, it shouldn't have to take someone leaving work, going in, and, and this is not medic criticism of our doctors or anyone, but all of us have spent time waiting an hour or two in, for our appointment to come about. And it could be handled so much easier if everyone accepted telemedicine. And you could do it just like I'm talking to you. I'm looking at you. They're listening to me. But I could be talking to my doctor right now, explaining what my symptoms are, with a nurse standing right beside me. If I was if I was in the rural healthcare clinic, and and saying yes, this is what his tests are and what have you, and you could get it done so much easier and cheaper and better using modern the tools of modern communication. So I would think the the ability to kind of expand that that. Uh, uh, solution or, or part of the solution in rural areas has certainly been challenged in this pandemic because of the amount of resources that are going just to to meet the needs there. I, I would say on the surface, but I, you know this issue more in depth than I do. But does that make this even more acute in terms of the challenges of our healthcare system? That that some of the things that we we needed to do are now even going to be more of a challenge or, or we've, we've got to address them somehow going forward uh, because of the pandemic. I mean, what, what impact has this had on, uh, on rural health care? Well, I guess the, the simple and only answer I could give is hadn't helped. Yep. Uh, you know, we, we got a wake up call on this one. Uh, we were supposed to be ready for a pandemic. There'd been a lot of money and effort going into planning and being ready for a pandemic but we have a, a change in leadership and they decide that wasn't the way to go about it, et cetera. And we weren't ready for it. it just, it's just, just plain English. Uh, we're going to get another pandemic. Uh, we're, we're looking at it in agriculture. For example, there are all kinds of diseases. If, if they hit our, our animal production system, it's a major problem. So it's smart for us to invest some money in research, getting ready for, the next pandemic, because we know it's going to happen. You can just predict it. Uh, so being ready, and that's where I come back. Just imagine what we could do with $1.3 trillion. Just imagine some of the things that need, we're talking healthcare right now. What are the improvements? How do you provide telemedicine? How do you provide rural healthcare clinics strategically placed around an area that would provide for what the local people wanted and need to provide for the health care under this new system we're talking about. 1.3 trillion. That's how much we are spending unnecessarily on health care that is not giving us any better result than any of the other developed nations in the world. Now, 
if that was in agriculture, look at oil and gas, look at the complaints we've had uh, about the oil and gas industry, which, by the way, we cannot get along without. Uh, the, the, those that believe that you can replace the oil and gas industry in the next 50 years, I, I wonder what they're smoking. It cannot be done, no matter what. So just imagine where you have an industry that's costing and everybody agrees to it. Now, those that are benefiting from it don't want to change it. Well, I won't say that either. Most of them are awfully good people and are ready for something, but that takes political leadership and political followership to get her done. And rural America, we're in a position now where it's a matter of necessity for us if we're going to have any semblance of rural America left in 10 more years. We have to provide health care. Now, wait a minute. I said that word again. We don't have to do anything except die. The rest of it is optional. And this is where our state needs to get more behind what is needed in the area of education and health care. We can't do without improved and at least op educational opportunities in our rural areas. And we can't do it without health care. And by the way, if you're in a city, last time I checked, you have to drive through rural areas to get wherever you're going, whether you're going from one city to the next. And when you have a car accident, it's in your best interest that you have health care available under a system that can deliver it at a cost that doesn't cost us a trillion, 300 billion more than it should. So looking ahead, we, we've got a, a state legislative session coming up. Uh, I know your years were in Congress, but you know, government in terms of, uh, of, of how all that works in terms of that federal state uh, relationship. And do, do you see any, any kind of momentum at all at the state level to try to address being that while this is not unique to Texas, Texas is, is, is seeing the, the, the impact of this and, and both in terms of the pandemic, but just in the decline of access uh, to healthcare in rural areas, uh, are there are there any initiatives or any attempts to try to move the state uh, to address some of these things in the, in the in the short term while we're trying to address some of the broader structural issues? Well, I, I hope so. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the state level uh, on on where they're planning. They've you know there's going to be a new speaker. We don't know who's going to be in the majority as yet. Uh, I hope so, and I certainly will lend my support to any of those that want to move in that direction because, to me, it is absolutely critical for our state to do a better job of addressing public education in Texas and do a better job of addressing health care. That will do more to provide the incentive and the continued attraction of bringing the people to Texas that we're bringing and the businesses that are coming and the job opportunities, if we address those two, uh, I can't think of anything else that will be more important uh, to Texas and the future leadership. Here, I, you give me a perfect opportunity because when we talk about problems, whether I, I make a few speeches around the country and we talk about the economy and the budget and the deficits, and finally, somebody will always ask it, okay, uh, Mr. Smart Man, uh, you... If there's one thing and one thing only that you could get done to change this, what would it be? That's the easiest question you're ever going to ask me. Change the way we redistrict our, our House and Senate districts in Texas. Make them competitive. What we have now under our political system that has helped cause the health care we're talking about right now, a major cause of this is we, we have polarized our two polar parties. My party is polarized way too far to the left or the middle to look at. They're scared to death of the, of the left. And the Republican Party is polarized far too far to the right. And that scares a lot of people in the middle, too. And if you have competitive districts where you actually have to run an election on what we're talking about, and attract people, whether you're in the city or whether you're in the country, but have talk about ideas and not political slogans. So that's my number one goal for the Texas legislature is to change the way we redistrict, go to a, a nonpartisan commission, make competitive districts so we can get back to our Republican form of government. 
I've discussed this issue with students at times in, in uh, uh, Texas government because, uh, as you know, and you've seen this happen, the population in Texas has shifted so dramatically where uh, that combined with redistricting, so you have these large urban areas, and then redistricting that uh, that tries to pull in some of those urban areas into rural districts that you know that in terms of geography they're they're rural, but they have this little slice of an urban area, and uh, you know of course the the trying to find a a solution that combines both geography and population is is always challenging in and of itself. But that I wonder, but coming back to our issue that we're discussing, is is that one of the significant things with rural Texas being the, those kinds of issues being addressed? Is that that we've had that kind of shift that places that emphasis most much more on our urban areas uh, than addressing those challenges in our rural areas like rural healthcare. Well, and here, too many of our rural representatives do not spend very much time at all concerning themselves with the issues of urban America. And that one of the things that I realized early in my political career that I wasn't going to get much done for my rural district by only having rural support. I had to get support from the urban areas. And what are the urban areas interested in? Food for their people. And instead of making this and healthcare and healthcare for their people, food and healthcare. And so I I looked for somebody in the inner cities that would at least listen to me. And then we started looking at an idea that we could agree on, preferably that you would have a Democrat and a Republican. And if two of us could agree on something, then we each get one more, so two becomes four, becomes eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, and bingo, you've got a majority. That's the way our political system is set up to work. It is completely broken. And hopefully after Tuesday, whoever gets elected will start putting it back together. And what the subject of our, your program today is healthcare is critical to the very future of the United States of America. And we have got to do a better job with less money. You're not going to be able to keep printing money at the rate we've been printing it for the last two or three years, four years, eight years. We're not going to be able to, I don't think. But as my wife, Cindy, says, when she hears me talk like this, she says, you've been saying that for a long time. Well, when I left the Congress, our debt to GDP was 60%. Today, it's 110 it's heading for 150 and 200. Now you tell me how much more we can continue to spend in increased health costs and just just let insurance pay for it and then complain about the premium on the insurance. I mean, it's just, to me, it's common sense, but to other people, it's politics today. So one final question here, I think that carries that a little bit further as well. And this is one of the things I've noticed uh, and, and offered some analysis on in the pandemic is that uh, as I see in my classes when I teach uh, students Texas and federal government, you know, one of the concepts that's very difficult for them to understand is federalism and, and how that relationship between the federal government and the state either works or doesn't work. And we've got plenty of illustrations of that throughout uh, history. But this pandemic, I think, has really heightened that because um, I, in fact, I had a, had a, seg, a segment on a show that the that President Trump was the victim of federalism, and I, and I phrased it that way because um, he was it, it, it was a victim in that he didn't understand it, and and that it that it, it this lack of ability to collaborate between the federal government and the states as a whole throughout the country in addressing a national problem created additional challenges, and and so I. I, I wanted to ask you uh, in looking at this especially in terms of healthcare and trying to find some solutions to me this this does seem like it's one of those issues that it, it's impacting the nation as a whole and the and the solution out of it has to be a, a a high level and maybe the highest we probably we may have seen in in generations of collaboration between the federal government and the states 
to be able to, to, to work through this and to be able to try to find a way uh, forward. Otherwise, it, it just continues to be a challenge when you have um, uh, different places, different states wanting to do different things, or you, you have the federal government uh, that uh, maybe is not engaged as much and is just saying, let, let the states do what they want to. I, I, I don't know. I've, uh, you're, you're, you've, you carry a lot of wisdom from your years in Congress. I don't, I don't know how you see this issue in that context and what really needs to happen. Well, you, you use the right term, Eric, and that is federalism. I mean, when you look at the Constitution, the marvel of the drafters of the Constitution, our founders, just still just amazes me because that simple document is just as good today as it was when it was first uh, conceived and passed. And that means every state's a little bit different. It's just like we're talking rural health care. We're a little bit different than Dallas or Houston or San Antonio. We're a little bit different, but we all belong to the same United States of America. We're all Texans at heart. And therefore, we ought not to have a us versus them mentality. We ought to have leaders looking for the solution. And to me, you know, one of the one of the places that I think President Trump missed the boat uh, on being a leader is on the mask question. I mean, just a simple thing like opening up, wearing masks, social distancing, I think it works. It darn sure doesn't hurt. It's uh, it's kind of like, uh, well, our political system is set up to work together for a solution. You've got to have leadership to point out the choices. And, and look on health care, look at what we've been through for the last four years. Some people didn't like the Affordable Care Act for very, and it could have been a lot better, quite frankly. But it would have been a lot better if my Republican colleagues would have worked together with and actually had votes on the different choices. Just we need to have some votes on some of these choices. We don't just need political solutions. If the Affordable Care Act is not working, why isn't it working? What's a better idea? What's the choice? And then vote on it. And Congress needs to vote on it. And Texas legislature, instead of the leadership turning down Medicaid for the working poor in Texas, which was a terrible mistake, in my opinion, the majority said, Charlie, you're dead wrong. We're protecting Texas. Well, let's vote on it. That's what the people are doing Tuesday, the final. And, you know, as I looked at the last Friday, when the results came in, we've already had more people vote in Texas last Friday then voted in 2016. And we've still got Friday and then Tuesday. There's going to be a lot of people voting. That's what we want. That's what we want, the will of the people. And then who gets elected? And I don't care who it is, whoever it is, we've got some real tough problems that are going to have to be solved, and they can best be solved by our system, federal system, as you mentioned, working. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. I mean, this is uh, very insightful in in terms of the challenges and looking at it and kind of putting it in a context that we all can can understand and then see how it connects down to our rural areas here in Texas, but all the way to the federal government and, and, and really some of the things that we can hope for in terms of our political system, but also uh, collaboration and trying to address what, what are very, very critical issues. And uh, uh, I want to thank you again today for being with us and, and sharing some of your insight uh, into this uh, issue on rural health care. If, if I might just take a minute and kind of sum up what I've tried to sure, say. Sure, you're very, very yeah, you welcome know, I, I, to do so. Just as you, I teach a class at Tarleton yeah. <laughs> on ag and energy policy, and right. I love it. I learned something every Monday night from some of the finest young men and women you could ever come in contact with. And one of the points that uh, that I make, uh, first point I make is that, uh, hey, I've got, I'm going to give you my opinions. You may have a different opinion, and you may be right. And they look at me like a professor saying, we may be right. We don't know anything in politics and political direction. Yeah, it's, it's what our system is based on, opinion, but then majority ruling and the majority moving in the direction it needs to be done. And that's a judgment that is always reserved back to the people. And with agriculture, you know, last time I checked, agriculture is pretty important. There's only 180,000, well, 
farmers producing 70, 80% of what's produced. There's even less oil and gas producers. The country cannot get along without food and without energy. And we're very small minorities in the state of Texas, in the legislature, oil and gas, agriculture, people-wise, very small minority. United States, even bigger. Healthcare now is important to everyone. And it's going to be important that we, those that we elect, come up with some better solutions than what we've got today. And I got a feeling they're going to do it. Oh, very good. Good. That's that's the optimism I think that we all need beyond this uh, election and looking to uh, find a way to make this work as the people of this country have been resilient and in the past and and really need to be again to make this move forward and, and address our challenges uh, together uh, and and uh, for the benefit of, of all. So thank you again for joining us today. Uh, it's, I hope that uh, not just on this issue, but uh, uh, since we this show has this interview format, that the opportunity we can welcome you back again in the in the future, especially as we look ahead. I mean, you mentioned redistricting uh, with the census wrapping up. That's that's going to be on the agenda here in the coming uh, uh next few years and trying to plan for that and what that, that will look like. But uh, but there's many other issues that you've experienced and, and continue to address as well. So uh, Tarleton, Tarleton is going to have a little bitty part to play in that because the Tarleton Math Department has been developing a mathematical right. approach that is being used in Pennsylvania and other states. And so uh, I'm tickled to death with the work that our young people here in our math department have done and going to You'll quite be surprised if they're not asked to uh, participate in the redistricting uh, discussion that's going to transform in uh, the Texas legislature next year. All right. Well, we'll certainly give that some attention and look forward to having you back again. And that was former Congressman Charlie Stenholm. We're we're glad to have you today. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back for more on politics. Politics can be confusing. But On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we're glad that you're joining us this day. Here we are right on the threshold of a presidential election and, of course, state and local elections combined as well due to rescheduling of some of those local elections during the crisis. So we hope that uh, everyone who is able and is registered is planning to vote. If you have not done so already, of course, we've seen record turnout in early voting. Uh, the fact that we've already met the uh, and surpassed uh, the threshold of early voting from the 2016 election. And we're seeing this all over the country. And so as we approach election day, uh, there were a couple of things that I wanted to just address and just to have in our minds as we're, we're getting to that election day. And some of this is connected to an interview I gave this past week and looking at economic issues, looking at the, the stock market and how well the stock market has done overall uh, under the presidency of Donald Trump, but then also looking at other things that are of concern to voters. Uh, and this goes back to, if you remember, and we just passed the uh, anniversary of that in October of 1980. It was the final debate between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. And Ronald Reagan closed with asking people to think about as they went to the voting booth and as they, they, they cast their vote, to ask themselves the question, am I better off now uh, than I was four years ago? And that question has resonated in 
elections, in campaigns, and in uh, so many different ways in the political life of our country since that time. And, and it shows and it represents, as he was aware of at that time in asking the question, that economic issues are always on the minds of voters. Um, because as we see, and we can look back over recent history, that economic uh, challenges come and go, uh, that uh, they often have that impact on presidential elections and, and, and other elections as well. And in fact, when we're looking at the election, this election now and just recent polling, uh, one of the uh, many of the, the indicators there are uh, pointing to the economy, the concern uh, with the economy. And in fact, 90 percent of voters who were polled on this, no, no matter what their party affiliation, and it was was very close and one of the most even indicators between Democrats and Republicans rated the economy as either extremely important or very important. Uh, in this election. And we can know why. We, we can look at uh, high unemployment, uh, given the pandemic and its impact. Uh, we can see that uh, the, the challenges it's created for a number of areas of of, of industry, uh, travel, entertainment, recreation, uh, restaurants, uh, and then other areas as well. The, the oil and gas business is another area that, that's been hit significantly uh, in all of this. And so the, the question that I was asked to answer this past week was in the minds of, of many voters and those that are looking at these issues, when you see the stock market, which has has had its ups and downs, it, it had a, a significant drop earlier this year when there were concerns about the pandemic and the, the lockdowns began to happen. Uh, but it's recovered and, and, and moved beyond that. So many people look at that and go, OK, well, why is the stock market doing so well? And yet we see the challenges with our economy. Now, we just did receive a, a recently a good uh, a, a third quarter report that was representative of a quick recovery. So that V-shape, we go down and then we come right back up. Uh, prediction that many economists made uh, with the early impact of the pandemic, and then the attempt to open back up, and then the the optimism that we would see an end to this, that we would find a way through it, that that uh, things would turn around and and the economy would get back on track. Uh, in a state like Texas, we ended 2019 and entered 2020 uh, with one of the hottest economies in this state in its history, and and then all of a sudden the bottom falls out because of the impact of the pandemic and. And we were having uh, budget cuts and we were having other crises in different uh, segments of our state economy. So the, the question here is, again, the stock market and the economy. Well, first of all, we, that, that phrase that's, that's used or sentence that's used over and over again that we just have to keep in our minds is that the stock market is not the economy. So that's the first thing that we need to recognize. And there are a lot of other indicators uh, that are determine our economic health as a country and as a state. Uh, and those range from crude oil prices to consumer confidence to orders for durable goods uh, to employment and unemployment uh, to the federal interest rate. Uh, to retail food sales, to 10-year yields on treasury bonds. I mean, all of those things are, are other indicators that are followed that give a much broader picture of what's going on within the economy. And, and so one of the challenges right now, and this is what, where you know it can be used to someone's political advantage uh, to focus in on certain aspects of this, but it could also be helpful for us as voters uh, to understand what is actually happening. Uh, and with the stock market, what we've actually seen, yes, it, we see it uh, that it's recovered, that it's moving back in a positive direction. But there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons that's out there that economists will identify is that uh, those who have significant amount of resources have not been spending uh, in the way that they were uh, pre-pandemic. And so they're looking for a place to invest those additional resources. And so they're going to the stock market. Uh, another is that the uh, yield on treasury bonds is low. And so that, again, kind of leaves the stock market as one of the few alternatives uh, for people uh, to invest. And, and really, the stock market, too, is, a, is it's a long-term uh, 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 
aspect of our economy. It, it's a it's a system by which capital is provided to uh, businesses to be able to uh, to grow, to do research, to uh, create new products, uh, to 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 focus on ha- ways that they can gain uh, more profits in order to pay their shareholders, and and that people then make. Uh, money off of investing in these businesses. And so that long-term part of it is is very, very critical. And so that's why a short uh, ups and downs in the stock market are are often not that significant. And and many will tell investors to say, hey, uh, don't, you know, don't follow the short-term losses and gains. You're in it for the long-term. But it also is that the stock market can be an indicator of when the economy is uh, starting to to uh, struggle, uh, and we saw that in that dip earlier in the year. Uh, we've seen some challenges, and and all of that is it, it, that we've seen this year is connected to the pandemic. It's connected to the optimism that okay, we're going to get through this. A vaccine will be available soon. Uh, and what we saw this last week, it was as it was apparent that. Cases are rising uh, in in many many states throughout the country, and that we we really haven't turned a corner. That we're we're still dealing with uh, the the a massive impact of this. That it had an effect on the market. Uh, it lost almost a thousand points on one of those uh, days this past week. Uh, so that that factor is there as well. In that the longer that this pandemic is not under control, the longer that it it is persistent and we're not making ground and trying to see an end to it, uh, the, the, the more impact that that is going to have uh, on the market. And, and it's going to have a, an impact uh, because a short-term impact on some of those areas like travel, like recreation and so on, that's offset by the benefit that other uh, companies receive medical suppliers, uh, uh, companies in technology who are even in more demand right now because of the ways that we're adapting to this pandemic. But over time, that begins to wear. It begins to wear on on the economy as a whole when you see so many different segments that are affected in different ways. Uh, you see that the that while the stimulus, the initial stimulus through the CARES Act provided people with income, provided resources for small businesses. We've not been able to see another stimulus package uh, passed by Congress. That has an effect as well, because now those resources that were there before have been used up, and there's still an impact. There's still a need. There's still a demand for uh, additional support to try to see this thing through, or we're, there is going to be that broader impact. More businesses will close, um, uh, more jobs will be lost, and uh, uh, more uh, people who are in that situation as the employment rate goes up, they have less to spend. That has an impact on revenue for government and 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 for others as well, and the profitability of businesses. So all of this is is really mixed together. It, it, it it's complex on the one hand, but then on the other hand, in terms of its relationship to elections and its relationship as we're seeing here to the pandemic, it's it's really something that we need to understand. And so in kind of closing this out, I turn to something that I've gone back to several times over this election cycle. If the most uh, uh, the issue of most concern to to U.S. registered voters as they're going to the polls now, uh, as as they have early voting and now as they will on Tuesday on Election Day, uh, is is that most important issue is the economy. We have to kind of look at some of the models that analyze that in relation to the election outcome. And so one of the ones that we've put in front of you uh, throughout this year are the Moody Analytics models, which were adjusted coming out of the 2016 election. And there were four aspects of those models that I want to point out to you and how uh, they may have an impact as we're wrapping up this election. The one was turnout and the Moody's analytic model, which the turnout factor has been in there in in previous elections, that turnout favors Democrats. Uh, If if we have large turnout across the nation, that 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 is going to favor uh, Democrats. While we've seen in some states the number of registered Republican voters increase, 
Uh, some of that is attributed to people who did vote for Donald Trump in 2016, but were not registered Republicans. And now they are. Many of those have been or the party has worked in those states, especially swing states, to do that. So the question here is, uh, are we headed for a record turnout, at least in the modern era in terms of this election? And if we are, that may confirm that almost nine point lead in national polls that Joe Biden has. The other three models are the pocketbook model, the stock market model, and the unemployment model. The pocketbook model being the one that goes back to that question I asked at the beginning. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? And so people that will be on people's minds in this environment of the pandemic and the pandemic worsening. The stock market model is one that impacts an election if there is some major turn in the stock market within a few weeks of the election. And we've not seen that other than we had that one day and it really depends on what happens in opening uh, uh, next week. Uh, but on this one, we don't see that that there there may be any kind of overall impact uh, on this uh, right now because people have been benefiting from the growth in the market if they have retirement plans, if they're investors and so on. But the other one that's in there is the unemployment model. The unemployment model, although we've seen some improvement, we still see high levels of unemployment across the nation because of the pandemic. And so they don't have a pandemic model, but you can see how all of that is tied together and how it impacts all of these areas. And so what I'm saying here is, is that all of these indicators, and, and I'm not, I've not been one on this show to make predictions, but all of these indicators are pointing to uh, Joe Biden winning the election on Tuesday, or at least in the days following, as we see if it's a close race in some states and how that determines the electoral college votes. All of this will be under scrutiny post-election, as it was in 2016, where there were so many models that did not uh, predict the outcome that happened. Uh, and we'll be looking at that. We'll be following back up to see how these things helped us to understand this presidential race and election and also the outcome. I would encourage you, since I will not talk to you again until post-election, uh, is that if you haven't voted, to vote on Election Day. And then also to, to be patient, to be civil, following the election, no matter who wins the presidency or who wins the races in our state or across the country, is that we've got to find a way forward, as uh, Mr. Stenholm said, to work together to address the critical issues that are before us and to find solutions that work. Thank you for joining us today, and we will look forward to being back with you post-election on politics. with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.